morning. If you would open up your scriptures to Exodus chapter 20. We'll be starting in verse 22 this morning. Exodus 20, verse 22. Uh, before I start reading, just a reminder, tonight we're having an evening service for the first time, uh, 6 o'clock. Uh, it's time just to come together once uh, as a church once more. Um, we'll be doing that at the end of the month, every month, and I'd uh, love to see you there. It'll kind of explain a little bit more what our ideas are for that evening service when you come. Uh, 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock. Uh, if you have any questions, please let me know after the service. But if you would, stand for the reading of God's word this morning. I'm starting in verse 22. This is the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourself that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hew stones. For if you willed your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be exposed on it. Let's pray this morning. Dear God, our Father in heaven, Lord, God, we come to you as we have taken communion this morning. We have come to the Lord's table in reflection of what your Son has done for us, Lord, on the cross. That he was crucified, that he was killed, that he bore the wrath of our sins, Lord, that he took our place, that he was our substitute and atoned for the sins, Lord that we earn. God, I pray as we come, Lord, this morning to this text that points forward to what Christ has done, Lord, for us. That we remember that it's by grace we are saved, not through works, Lord. That you are a gracious God. That our sins are unpayable, Lord. That we could never pay them ourselves, Lord, but because of your grace, Lord, you have sent your son to die on the cross for us, Lord, that, that you are pointing your people forward to what we look backwards at, Lord, at communion. God, I pray that you're with us this morning, that we see your grace, that we're in awe of the consistency of your word. In your son's name, amen. You may be seated. Today we'll be finishing up Exodus chapter 20, last week we saw uh, that Moses was the mediator between God and his people. We're going to be transitioning this week into the law, and we'll be in the law for the next few chapters. This portion of scripture, this portion of Exodus, is often called the Book of the Covenant, and we'll be talking about the law and the Book of the Covenant a little bit more next week. But before we get there, I want you to look at verse 22. Verse 22 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, 
we're seeing this transition now where Moses is speaking for God. God speaks to Moses. Moses takes that message to the people, and this is what the message is. You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Israel has just been exposed to the awesome glory of God at Mount Sinai and lived. They have heard God's very own thunderous voice and lived. And at the end of it, as we saw last week, they were driven to Moses, God's mediator, in terror. And Moses' first words that, that came to the Israelites were, Do not fear. Do not fear. Moses reassured Israel that God didn't come to destroy them. Once you think about where they were and what was going on in, in their heart and their thoughts and their mind and the relief they, they heard when they heard Moses say, do not fear. From here, there really was only one appropriate response, and that was worship. After seeing God's glory, fear, awe, respect, reverence, and worship are all appropriate responses. God's glory causes both fear and and worship. But there was one major problem when it came to Israel at Mount Sinai. Israel didn't know how to worship. They didn't know how to worship. Remember, Israel just spent 400 years in slavery within a pagan nation, Egypt, meaning for 400 years, Israel watched and witnessed the Egyptians worship their pagan gods in pagan ways, meaning they have been influenced by pagan worship. So in today's passage, we're going to see that one of the first things God does in his law, after giving the Ten Commandments and as we enter into the law portion of Exodus, one of the first things he does is to teach Israel how to worship. There's two points of the sermon this morning. These two points are meant to be in contrast with each other because this passage has, has two different emphases that are meant to be in contrast with each other. The first point is this. God teaches Israel how not to worship. He teaches Israel what, what not to do when it comes to worship. And the second point is Israel, God teaches Israel how to worship. So let's just start with God teaching Israel how not to worship. Again, if you would look at verse 22, it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourself that I have talked with you from heaven. Therefore, verse 23 says this, You shall not Make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. Now, verse 23 is a combination of the first and second commandment. The first commandment being, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment being, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or an idol. God knew that after seeing what Israel saw at Mount Sinai, the experience that they had, Israel would be tempted to make some sort of image of God, some kind of idol to worship with. Because at this point, that's really all they knew. That's how the Egyptians worshipped their deities, their false gods. But God tells Israel in verse 23, You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. In other words, God will not be worshipped like the pagan gods. God will not be worshipped by images. 
One commentator put it this way. An important theological principle lies behind this command in verse 23. God is not the kind of deity who can be adequately represented in the form of an idol. He is the God who speaks from heaven. In other words, he's the God that was heard, not seen. The Israelites met him on the mountain in fire and smoke. They experienced his splendor and glory. How can anything we are tempted to look at, no matter how precious or how shiny or how well-made, ever compare to the real beauty and majesty of God? The things of earth cannot compete with the glories of heaven. What is imminent cannot rival what is transcendent. And this is really the heart of the second commandment. God is expanding on the second commandment in our passage this morning. God is a God who is heard, not seen. Precious metals are beautiful, but they do not come close to the beauty of Yahweh. Again, look at verse 24 now. It says this, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, offerings, your sheep, and your oxen. God commands Israel here to make an altar of earth. That word earth in Hebrew just means ground or dirt. In other words, God is commanding Israel to make a mound of dirt, right? An altar of earth and sacrifice on that. In fact, look at verse 25. It says this, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hue stone, for if you willed your tool on it, profane it. In other words, you can use stones for this altar, but not carved stones. You can make an altar of dirt and put stones on the outside, but but no carved stones. In fact, if, if you use a tool on any of the stones, God says in verse 25, you profane the altar. Now, why is God commanding this? Remember, God is teaching Israel not to worship him like the pagans worship. Right? Pagans would use all types of precious metals, costly carved stones, and expensive materials to make their altars to worship their gods. But God didn't want the Israelites to worship him like the pagans. Human craftsmanship would only be a distraction to true worship. God himself is to be the focus, not precious metals, not carved stones or images. Again, not human craftsmanship. Therefore, he says, make a mound of dirt. And if you're going to use stones, make sure that no tool has been used on those stones. Make an altar with that. God is teaching Israel that he's not like the pagan gods. He's not like the pagan gods, and therefore Israel was not to worship Yahweh like the pagans worship their gods. Again, look at verse 24. 24 says this, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Again, in verse 23, we see another contrast between Yahweh and the pagan gods. In antiquity, the pagan gods were always local deities. They, that, that means that they were located or connected to a, a geographical location. Nations, lands, places, 
But Yahweh is the God of all creation. Look what he says at the end of verse 24. He says this, In every place where I cause my name to be remembered. In other words, God is not limited to a geographical location. Just think about it for a second. I want you to think about the temptation there would be for the Israelites to see Mount Sinai after they experienced they had at Mount Sinai and be tempted to think that Mount Sinai was the only place you could worship Yahweh. But God makes it clear right off the bat, he's not like the pagan gods. He can be worshipped anywhere because he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. So he says, every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. This second part of the verse 24 actually is really foreshadowing the tabernacle, which is portable, which is moving from place to place because God can be worshipped from place to place. In fact, more than that, it's a foreshadowing to the Great Commission where we are to take God's name, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to the nations, to to every place on earth where God will be worshipped. Again, God is teaching Israel how to worship him. And he's weeding out all these pagan, te- er, pagan tendencies that influence Israel. And that's probably most clearly seen in verse 26. Verse 26 says this, And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness, may, or that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now, verse 26 is somewhat funny to the modern reader. In fact, awkward to end the reading this morning as we stand in honor of God's word on verse 26 for us. Again, as modern readers, you might just think, well, why don't you just wear underwear? Um, In fact, it becomes part of the law that the priests were to wear undergarments, so this wouldn't happen. Let me just point out two things, because this would not have been unusual for the Israelites to hear this in their time period. The first thing is this. Pagans would make elaborate religious structures and altars to honor their gods. Steps on an altar, right, would be underneath an altar, were frequently used to increase the altar's height, which just emphasized the importance of the altar. But think about it. Again, there is no height high enough to worship Yahweh. All the high altars ever made by man, fall infinitely short. Therefore, God says, don't focus on the height of the altar. Second thing I want to point out, though, from verse 26, is that pagans often mix worship and sexual perversion together. Nakedness was often the way you would bring an offering to a pagan god. And they would mix nakedness and sex. You see temple prostitutes throughout the Old Testament, the pagan temples. But God would not be worshipped this way. He will not be worshipped like the pagan gods. He would be worshipped in purity, not through sexual perversion. Therefore, the worshipper was not to expose nakedness in worship of Yahweh. There would be no sexual perversion or sin in worship of Yahweh. Again, God was teaching the Israelites how not to worship. He knew that there was a risk of, of syncretism. That's a a fancy word. Secretism means a a combination of different beliefs and faith and religious practices. 
because Israel lived in Egypt for 400 years and was exposed to so much pagan worship, God knew it would be a temptation to try to combine these pagan ways of worship with true worship of Yahweh. Before we move on to our second point this morning, I just want to say that's still a temptation today. There's so many churches that will take false religions, beliefs in, in, in other ways of, of thinking, philosophies, take secular ideas, which is a religious within, religion within itself, and try to bring it into the church. We need to make sure that, that we worship God the way that he is prescribed to be worshipped. And this is what God was doing. He's weeding out all these false beliefs and these pagan beliefs, and he was teaching Israel how not to worship. But he was also teaching Israel how to worship, and that's our second point this morning. God teaches Israel how to worship. Again, if you would look at verse 24, it says this, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it. Now, verse 24 is a positive command, you shall make. It's meant to be in contrast to all the other commands we see within this passage, right? Look at verse 23. We see two negative commands. You shall not make gods of silver. You shall not make for yourselves gods of gold. Then you get to verse 24, which is meant to be a contrast. You shall make an altar of earth or dirt and sacrifice on it. Again, God is contrasting pagan worship with true worship. He's teaching Israel how to worship. Again, look at verse 24. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. Israel was to worship Yahweh through animal sacrifices, which fits into the theology of the Old Testament. Animal sacrifices are central to worship of Yahweh. In the Old Testament, from Genesis on, right from Adam and Eve, when God clothed them with animal skin, right in the beginning, animal sacrifice has been, been central to, to worship of Yahweh. It's found everywhere. Verse 24 just fits into that, but there's specific instructions. He says, make an altar of earth, in other words, again, a mound of dirt, earth, and offer two types of sacrifices, burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, this leads to a question, and I hope it's a question you ask when you read through Scripture. Why these two offerings? Why these two sacrifices? What's significant about the burnt offering and the peace offering? Well, I think they are significant, and I want to look into that this morning. So if you would, turn to Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. As you're turning there, let me just give you the context of chapter 1. I'm sure most of us aren't super familiar with the book of Leviticus. Um, The first seven chapters of Leviticus have to do with the law surrounding the different types of offerings made to the Lord. Chapter 1 gives instructions for the burnt offerings— it's sometimes called the whole burnt offering in, in your, uh, throughout the Old Testament. Chapter 3 gives a law surrounding the peace offering. Sometimes this is called the fellowship offering. In fact, some of your translations might have that in Exodus, the fellowship offering. 
Now, it's not by chance that they're in this order. I just want to be clear. The burnt offering comes first, then the peace offering. It's what we see in Leviticus, but it's also what we see in Exodus, that they were to offer the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. So let's look at these two different offerings, these two different types of offerings, and figure out why. It's my goal. Let's figure out why God commanded them in Exodus chapter 20 at Mount Sinai after he has spoken from the fire. Look at Leviticus 1, verse 1. It says this, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, Again, Moses is the mediator. When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Verse 3, If his offering is a burnt offering, Again, this is the first type of offering that we see in Exodus chapter 20, a burnt offering. Verse 3, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. Let me just stop here. This is how a person finds acceptance before the Lord. Through offering, through sacrifice that he may be accepted before the Lord. Verse 4, he shall. Now I want to stop here because it's super important, and you might miss it if you don't think through this clearly. Who is the he in verse 3 and 4? That he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall. Who's the he? Or what is the antecedent to the personal pronoun he here? It's the worshiper. person bringing bringing the offering. It's not the priest at this point. And that's important. Because look, look at what the worshiper is to do. Verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. Now this is before the animal is killed. The animal is still alive. The, the worshiper would bring the animal and put his hand, he'll lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and at sh- and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. In other words, the burnt offering is about atonement. When the worshiper who brought the animal laid his hand on the head of the animal, he was identifying with that animal. It was a symbolic acknowledgement of a substitution that was about to take place. The animal substituted for the worshiper. The animal was going to take the place, in other words, of the worshiper and receive the penalty for sin that the worshiper deserved. This was substitutionary atonement. The animal took the place of the worshiper, substitutionary, and received his penalty, atoned for his sins. And what was the penalty of sin? The disobedience for breaking the law of God. God just gave the Ten Commandments. What is the, the penalty for breaking the law? Well, look at verse 5. Then he shall kill the bull or the animal before the Lord. Listen, the Bible is just so clear on this. The penalty for sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin, what is earned through sin, is death. 
Ezekiel 18.20, the Old Testament, the soul who sins shall die. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, in other words, death, there is no forgiveness of sins. The animal took the place of the worshiper, and the animal paid the worshiper's penalty, the wages, which was death. Now, there's something else I want to point out, which, again, I think we just kind of skip over sometimes, especially when we're reading through the book of Leviticus. But I think it's super significant. Who's doing the killing? Again, not the priest. Look at verse 5. Then he, who's the he? The worshiper, the offerer. Then he shall kill the bull. So I just want you to think about this for a second. The worshiper would come with a valuable animal. The worshiper would lay his hand on this animal, his own animal, symbolizing that this animal is about to take his place. And then the worshiper would slit the throat of the animal's neck. watch holding it down as the blood drained out and the animal slowly died this was vivid imagery it was vivid imagery it was a vivid reminder of the penalty of sin a vivid reminder of the seriousness of disobedience and and breaking God's law it was a vivid reminder of God's justice poured out on this animal. It was a vivid reminder of the cost of grace, forgiveness. Listen, grace is not cheap. Not cheap. You know, the common thought today in modern Christianity is that God will just forgive you. If you come to him, he'll just forgive you. No, he can't forgive you without a substitute, without justice being paid. Grace and forgiveness is not cheap. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible says, there is no forgiveness of sins. But more than all of this, for the Israelite, the burnt offering was a vivid image that pointed Israel forward the true Lamb of God. God's very own Son, Jesus. Listen, the Bible is so clear on this throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. An animal could never truly pay the penalty of sin for a human. The burnt offering was just a symbol. In fact, it was much like our symbol that we just went through this morning, communion or the Lord's table. Communion doesn't take away sins. The Lord's table doesn't take away sins. Drinking the cup and eating a piece of bread doesn't do anything towards getting rid of sin. It was a symbol. It's a symbolic symbol that points us to the death of Jesus on the cross, to substitutionary atonement, what happened on the cross. Similarly, the burnt offering was a vivid symbol pointing Israel forward to that same cross. By the way, 
This is why in Exodus 20, the altar was made of dirt. Not precious carved stones or or expensive metals. Because it would have been a distraction to what was truly precious. Listen, gold is what God makes his streets out of. It's like asphalt. It's not valuable. The true valuable, the true value is found in the sacrifice. Forgiveness of sin through substitutionary atonement. Now, now that's beautiful. That's valuable. In fact, listen to Peter in 1 Peter 1.18. He says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, worthless to God, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. In Exodus 20, God was teaching Israel that what was important not silver or gold, not carved stone. What was important was a sacrifice. What's important in worship, listen, is so important for us as a church. What's important in worship is the gospel. It's the gospel. The Son of God, the Lamb of God, who came and died on the cross for our sins. That's valuable. It's the precious blood of Christ valuable not man's craftsmanship just kind of a side note there's a practical application here that I can't just skip over because there's a lot of beautiful church buildings in the world in fact I have a book on my office desk that's like this big and it's just pictures of beautiful church buildings throughout the world new ones old ones some hundreds of years old some modern throughout all the world. Beautiful buildings. Incredible cathedrals. But I I can say this, as I've looked through the churches that are in there, and I don't know every single church, so I can't say this universally, but there are very few, if any, in that book that I'd be a member of. It's really just a book dedicated to the craftsmanship of man. I'd love to visit them, don't get me wrong. Be made in God's image, and there's incredible things that man has made. But they're just buildings. The gospel is not being proclaimed within those buildings. If the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus is not being proclaimed, then those churches aren't truly beautiful. They're just pretty buildings. In fact, It just reminds me, as I was thinking of this, of what Jesus said to the Pharisees, that they were whitewashed tombs full of the dead. Listen, there are churches gathering in grass huts in Africa that are way more beautiful than those church buildings. There are churches in China without buildings, meeting underground, that are way more beautiful than the greatest cathedral in Europe. precious blood of Christ that's beautiful. The precious blood of Christ that's valuable. It's not gold or silver. 
And that is what God wants his people to be focused on, not externals, not, not empty religious traditions, not on buildings, precious metals, or, or man's craftsmanship, but on the gospel. In Exodus 20, it was the sacrifice on the altar, not the altar itself, that was to be the focus. Look at verse 5 in Leviticus chapter 1. It keeps going. Verse 5. Then he, which is the worshiper still, then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the side of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meetings. Then he, now this is the priest, then, then the priest shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the, its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall, listen, burn all of it. Burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, meaning the whole animal would be burned. This is why this, this offering, the burnt offering, is sometimes called the whole burnt offering. The whole animal would be sacrificed for the sins of the worshiper and then given to Yahweh. The animal actually would be transformed. The Hebrew word for burnt means to be transformed into smoke or incense. The animal would be transformed into smoke that would rise to heaven and it would be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The burnt offering taught Israel that substitutionary atonement is needed to please Yahweh. It's how you worship Yahweh. But that wasn't the only sacrifice commanded by God in Exodus 20, verse 24. At Mount Sinai, there was a second offering. Let me just read it, Exodus 20, verse 24. It says this, An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice it on it, your burnt offerings, or, or the whole burnt offering, and your peace offerings. Again, sometimes this is called the fellowship offerings. Now again, if you study the first few chapters of Leviticus, you'll learn that the peace offerings, which is talked about in Leviticus chapter 3, are almost identical to the burnt offerings. But there's one major difference, and it's a very important difference. In the peace offerings, you didn't burn the whole animal. Instead, you only burnt the fat portions of the animal. The rest of the animal was eaten. In other words, the choicest part of the animal was offered to God. The rest of the animal is cooked until tender and then eaten by the worshipers to celebrate God and his grace. The peace offering was a celebration. I hope you paid attention to what Mike said this morning as he was talking about communion because we see both the burnt offering and peace offering. Substitutionary atonement, Mike said being somber as we think about and reflect that our sins were paid for on the cross and at the same time a celebration because they were paid for on the cross. There's a difference between the burnt offering and the peace offering. It's slight, but there's a difference and it's so significant. The whole burnt offering focused on substitutionary atonement and forgiveness. It focused on the sacrifice. The peace offering 
focus on fellowship. It was a feast. In fact, it was a barbecue. <laughs> As I was studying it this week, I couldn't help but think about the church picnic we had last week. I don't know how many cows died for that. In one sense, it was like a joy-filled party, a celebration of God's grace. A celebration of fellowship with each other and with him. I want you to listen to what Temper Longman, this is an expert of the Old Testament, writes about the peace offering. He says this, Shalom, Hebrew word for peace, it's a word that's used, peace offering, Shalom, refers to the condition that results from being in covenant with God. Sin disrupts Shalom. And so the peace offering describes the condition that results once that breach has been resolved. Therefore, the peace offering was a joyous celebration, a kind of religious party where priest and worshiper enjoyed a sumptuous meal in the presence of God. It was a feast. It was a celebration. And in a lot of ways, the peace offering really should describe our relationship with God. As his people, we have a joy-filled peace that will last for eternity. And the reality of that should affect every single day of our lives as we live in this world. In fact, I just want you to listen to Psalms 23. It'll be on the on the screen here, but I think most of us have it memorized. Just listen to this. The Lord, Yahweh, L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still or, or quiet or restful waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In other words, for his glory, he does this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, in, in other words, David, in this life on earth, walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Death was surrounding him, the picture that he's giving. Friends may be dying in war, threats of death in his own life. In other words, pain, suffering, and grief David was going through, trials, what he says I will fear no evil for you're with me your rod and your staff they comfort me listen to this verse 5 you prepare a table before me what's that it's a feast it's a feast at God's table God is preparing a table for David to come fellowship with him at a feast. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It doesn't mean that the, the circumstances of life have gone away for David in this moment. But God is preparing a feast for him. It overshadows even what he's going through. And it says this, you anoint my head with oil when, when, when people would come to a feast and the, the ancient times, when you, when you would enter into a person's house, that person would anoint that person with oil, saying they're a welcome guest here. You anoint my head with oil, my cup 
overflows. Again, David is describing a feast at God's table, a joy-filled celebration that God himself is preparing for David. Therefore, David can say in verse 6, even with him walking through the valley of shadow of death, he can say this in verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Listen, this is what the peace offering portrays. A joy-filled feast and fellowship with one another. That's why we take communion together even. Fellowship with one another. The worshipers in the Old Testament would do the peace offering together in fellowship. More importantly, with fellowship with God. And here's the amazing thing about all of this. For how scary Mount Sinai is, for how just terrifying it is that God spoke to the Israelites in thunder and lightning and in a thunderous voice that brought them to their knees in terror, God commands this feast afterwards says this in Exodus 20 verse 24 an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings your peace offerings your sheep and your oxen in every place where I cause my name to be remembered listen to this I will come to you and bless you man there's so much I could say on this I wish I had all day to just keep talking about this but But let me end with this. God gives ten commandments. Again, from his own thunderous voice, which rightly terrified the Israelites. And before Israel even had a chance to break them, which they will, (laughs) before they even had a chance to rebel against Yahweh, before Israel even had a chance to sin after, after God spoke the Ten Commandments, God provides a way for Israel to atone for that sin. And then because of this atonement, he commands Israel to celebrate, to have a feast, a peace offering, so beautiful you know what this reminds me of you know what the peace offering reminds me of and this is in the old testament this is mount sinai you know what this reminds me of the father's feast and the parable of the prodigal son same god the father who kills the fattened calf and then throws a joy-filled party at his table at his house and invites the son to come in because the son returned home. This is the God we worship, a God full of mercy and grace. This is why David could confidently say, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever.
dear God, our Father, God, I pray that same prayer that David prayed in Psalms 23, Lord, that even though we live in this life where there's trials and challenges and and ultimately death staring us down, we shall not fear, for you are with us. You prepare a table, you prepare a feast for us. Even though we have rebelled against you, just like David rebelled against you, your mercy and grace is poured out on us, Lord. Even though we know the Israelites will do exactly what you commanded them not to do by by making a golden calf you still poured out your grace on them God I pray that we as a church Lord learn from this portion of scripture that what's precious to you Lord is a sacrifice God I pray that we are faithful to continue to, to proclaim the good news, to to worship your son and what he has done for us. Coming and living a perfect life, dying on the cross, Lord. I, I pray that we understand that that's where the beauty lies. That we don't get distracted by man's craftsmanship, by the paint on the walls, the color of the carpet, the type of music, the volume, that we as a church would focus in our worship and the mercy and grace offered to us because of your son. God, I pray that's true for us. In your son's name, amen.